Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Graw Pod. Doug Graw here along with my good friend and co-host Gary Randall. How you doing Gary? I'm good Doug. Thanks for having me again today. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes, we don't do this very often. We're typically a little bit more issue-based and stuff that goes beyond just a certain time frame or a certain snapshot in time. But this summer has been a little bit busier than normal in terms of industry headlines, industry news. So I thought, Gary, you and I probably could help some of our listeners and some of our clients and so on. Talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry, some initial thoughts that you and I may have, and some takeaways from what's going on. We've been around the industry a long time, and I'm not going to try to say this is like the most we've ever seen in one summer stretch of notable headlines, but it does appear to be a little bit busier year than maybe some past years. What would you say, Gary? I would say it's pretty close to it, if not the busiest year. And it just seems like there's just been all kinds of things in the industry and outside the industry that have come up over the summer so far. I mean, everything from companies closing to the weather, which has been unusual all across the nation and has certainly disrupted the supply chain. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So what's going on? I think the first thing we got to start with, we're recording this here in early August, the big headlines in trucking and in logistics and in supply chain revolve around yellow, YRC worldwide, yellow freight roadway, whatever they're calling themselves these days. But the unfortunate looks like going to be closing of yellow. Yeah, certainly impacts an awful lot of people, 30,000 plus employees. When you think about that, to put that in perspective, We're recording here in Minnesota. We both live in Minnesota. The Twin Stadium seats 38,000 people if it's sold out. So you stop and think about it that way and put it into perspective. It's like looking around the stadium and every single person watching the ball game just lost their job. Now we got to make jokes about whether or not the Twins would ever get 38,000 people in their stadium (laughs) again to watch a game. They're 500 winning percentage, but division leading Minnesota Twins. But you are right. The first and foremost is the impact this will have directly on employees, drivers and office workers and folks out in the yard and in the shops. Impacts a lot of them, impacts a lot of vendors, impacts a lot of customers just with the right here and right now. What do we do next? One thing I did like, they're not going to be the only ones trying to help out, but the American Trucking Association, I know, has put together a splash page, web page of sorts to try to help drivers that are impacted by yellow potentially land new opportunities. The good thing in particular for drivers, but also for anyone in the shops, even in a relatively softer market, there are lots of trucking companies, good trucking companies out there, hiring employee drivers, contracting with independent contractors. There are opportunities out there. Yeah, for sure there is. There's opportunities out there. Now, the lifestyle may change a little bit because certainly as these drivers find new homes, they're probably not going to be able to duplicate exactly what they were doing at Yellow. So there'll be some changes there that will impact them professionally and impact their families as well. So a lot of change going on to be sure for those folks that got caught up in that. Yeah. And I think that brings up a good point. You and I don't necessarily do a lot directly in recruiting. There are plenty of good recruiting experts and people who are more specialized and truly excellent in that area. And we're happy to give you names of those folks. But what you said there reminded me of, if you are going to be recruiting people that are coming out of yellow, have a little bit of empathy. Do understand what it is they're going through. Can you tailor your onboarding, your recruiting experience to stuff that can help them get through this particular pain, you might have more success with your ability to recruit and retain them. 
Well, for sure. And to be understanding and empathetic about the fact that they're going to be a little gun shy, probably. This is a big change because when you think about it, a lot of those folks that drove for Yellow and worked for Yellow were long-term employees, especially the union type jobs. Those were guys that were in position where they thought, I'm sure that they would retire from that job someday. So there'll be some really good workers, some really good drivers available. The companies that are going to win in bringing them aboard are going to be the companies that understand they've got to welcome them aboard and make sure that they're answering every question and dotting every I and crossing every T. We'll also be curious to watch unfold, and it is unfolding right now, is also what's happening on the freight side. I don't know exactly where their current ranking was or their last ranking on Transport Topics Top 100 or Freight Waves Top 500, but yellow, really kind of no matter how you cut it, was going to be a top 10-ish transportation provider in the United States. One of the oldest transportation providers in the United States. Obviously, they've had some fantastic years in the past. Like a lot of organizations, they've had their glory days. The glory days were definitely not recently. And honestly, they've been in tough times, tough straits, whatever you want to say. You could argue going back 20 years. Neither you or I worked for Yellow. We don't have inside knowledge, so none of this is stated that way. But being a part of the industry and following industry news and industry trends and what's been going on, it feels like we've been reading about the potential downfall of Yellow about six months after we read about the big announcement that they were buying Roadway. And then after they bought USF, and then after they bought such and such and such and such, felt like they were always buying somebody big and also taking on tons and tons of debt to do those purchases. It didn't appear from the outside, again, neither you nor I have inside knowledge on this, but from the outside, it didn't appear that the purchases went terribly smoothly in terms of the integration. I don't know about the financial side of it, but just the integration of it, the culture changes and so on, the operational issues. It doesn't appear that a lot of those went that smoothly. Definitely didn't go painlessly. Then throw in some labor issues to go along with it, some global recession some rising interest rates and so on. What I'm trying to say is it's news that is finally here, but we've been hearing about it probably for 20 years. Agreed. And the interesting thing is with everything you just said, despite all of that, when they went out of business, they were still the third largest LTL carrier in the country. And I think if I remember right, 27,000 tons of freight per day, that added up to about 10% of the LTL capacity in the country. So a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, that's a lot to replace. But the second thought that we talk about this all the time, no matter how big a carrier gets, it's always interesting to see what a small percentage of the overall capacity in that market they represent. You and I get a chance to talk to small companies all the time. Those small companies don't grab any headlines and no one really pays attention to them, but there's many more of them than there are these big conglomerates. As big as Yellow was, the third largest LTL carrier in the country still only represented 10% of the LTL capacity. And I'm not minimizing the 10% to be sure, but if you really stop and put it in perspective, they weren't touching 90% of the LTL business. So it's interesting when you kind of look at it like that. Yeah. And we will continue to say that the people impacted, we feel definitely bad for them. The good thing is there should be opportunities for them. And the good thing for those companies hauling that 90% is there's opportunities. And you and I work with a handful of LTL carriers. 
they're looking to make gains here and have been making gains because these headlines have always kind of been out there and kind of started picking up steam a month or two ago. There have been, we know, some companies making gains and picking up some freight because it's not like Yellow was operating at full capacity last Friday and closed its doors on Monday. That's not what has happened. But there are opportunities to pick up freight for drivers out there some of it will get picked up by ArcBest and Roadrunner, which are also very, very large companies, good companies. But there's going to be opportunities with medium-sized companies and smaller companies for those drivers to keep working similar freight, doing similar things, but maybe in a smaller organization. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So yellow's not all of the headlines out there. I'm curious, Gary, just what else has kind of caught your eye this summer? I'll tell you, some of it's repetitive, Doug, and it's not necessarily a new event or a new issue, but it's just the recruitment and the retention of drivers. It just continues to be a battle that as an industry, we fight over and over again. We see that as parts of the economy flourish and jobs are created, that takes drivers away from the pool. So I would say while that's that certainly is not a new topic to be discussed. It's a topic that I find our clients still facing on a daily basis and spending a lot of time and money trying to work through. Yeah, you're right. It is fascinating. There's some excellent information that gets put out there. Shameless plug, one of them that I know I'm a fan of. I do like reading NTI, National Transportation Institute's work. I think they put out some very valuable information in this space. And there are others. I don't want to make it seem like they're the only resource. We've got friends in other parts of that segment too. It's interesting reading that information, seeing what they're saying about what's going on in the market. You're right, because in some ways, we're seeing that carriers can be a little choosier than maybe they were a year ago when they really couldn't find anybody any good quality to fill their seats. But the machine never stops. The recruiting always has to continue and you really can't stop that machine because it's really hard to get it going again. Yeah, it is. It's almost impossible. You never turn the faucet off because once you do, you're going to take a couple of years to get it going again. And at that point, it might be too late. We really just are seeing a lot of different demands and a lot of different issues that are coming up. I shouldn't say issues, a lot of different opportunities for people that were truck drivers that are jumping into different industries. With the infrastructure bill that was passed, all you have to do is look around the Twin Cities where we live, Doug, and on the outer loop, if you took the 694-494 loop around the Twin Cities right now, you'd run into three or four major construction projects just in that loop alone. So those jobs take truck drivers away from the -the over-the-road driving positions and the regional driving positions because they know that they can go work those construction jobs where there's strong demand and they can be home every night. So the good news is the road are getting fixed or expanded upon, which trucking needs desperately. The challenge is some of those very workers that are doing that work that are helping the trucking industry used to be truck drivers and now those trucks are vacant. Yeah. And speaking of trucks, it might seem a little odd that you and I, based in Minnesota, would be talking about this, but being the nationwide industry that trucking is and the nationwide help that we provide, I know one thing that has caught a lot of headlines this summer and is definitely raising eyebrows and raising blood pressure levels at a lot of trucking companies and logistics companies is what's going on with equipment standards. With California imposing another round of equipment standards that are going to be coming soon, an agreement between the equipment manufacturers in California regarding standards going into the future and what kind of emission standards the equipment needs to hit. 
get in the EPA really not stepping up and saying, we're going to set the standards and California, you need to stand down or other states, you need to stand down. There's a lot of nervousness, I think, in the industry about what are we doing in terms of policy that's going to make this stuff work? Because the push towards zero emissions, laudable, there's no doubt about that. We all want a good environment and so forth, but we also want trucks that are reliable. We want trucks that are safe. We want trucks that have comfort for the drivers and so on. We can't be pushing the technology to an extent that we lose reliability. We lose the ability to fuel it or power it. We lose the ability to maintain it and repair it. What I hear from our clients and what I hear from equipment experts, and neither you or I are equipment experts, we are going so far out on the emission standards, and we are just not paying attention to all the other consequences that are going to come along with that. And I think that is causing a lot of stress for the industry, for the manufacturers, for shippers, because it's going to impact capacity quite a bit of what's out there. Yeah, there's no doubt. Those unintended consequences that you're referring to. We were with a client earlier this week, and it's a distribution company. They're active in California. They operate in California. And their comment was that the electric trucks that they're being pushed to purchase are three times as expensive as the trucks that they've been able to purchase up to this point. Along with that cost worry, how they're going to handle that comes the worry of the infrastructure. How's the infrastructure going to support it? How are they going to be able to afford charging stations at their facilities? Or are they going to have to go to some type of public or rented charging station when they do that? What kind of time is that going to take out of the day? What's that going to do to their delivery schedules? So there's almost an insurmountable task when you start laying it all out there. Yet we're going to have to find a way as an industry and we're going to work through it and continue to serve the public, continue to do it profitably. But there's definitely some challenges out there for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. A friend and client of ours, we were in a room, it was a policy room, we were discussing policy among a variety of industry leaders. He raised the question, which I thought was a great question, and I don't know the answer to it, is when policymakers and think tanks are putting studies together about the trade-offs between called electric and diesel or electric and gas, what's more efficient and what has more emissions tied to it and what's going to cost more and all that kind of stuff. I have no illusions that this would be a giant piece of the pie, but I think it was an illustration of something that doesn't get thought of when putting together these policies. And he brought up the analogy. He said, if I have a diesel pickup truck and my wife has an electric car. So if we go on vacation for a week and I come home, my wife's car, which was fully charged when we left, needs to be charged again. It's lost its charge. My diesel pickup truck still has all the diesel in it that it had when I left. I don't need to do anything. Is that type of loss still in it? And again, maybe that is being part of the analysis. I don't know. But it was a question he asked and no one in the room could answer if that was a part of it. It goes just the whole notion of is all this stuff being evaluated completely and appropriately? And I, for one, am all for us being more emissions friendly. That's quite impressive what has happened with diesel equipment and how clean it actually burns these days. There are a lot of improvements in that regard, and I want to see us continue to make improvements. I think manufacturers and the industry should be pushed 
I don't want to say we should go back to 1998 equipment and just everybody go about their business, but there's responsible pushing, maybe what I'd say. And as far as the headlines go, I just know that they continue to make headlines with this continued push, another round coming from the state of California. And I do know it is creating some anxiety within the industry. Well, and it's one thing that we try hard, I think, to work with on our clients when we're looking to solve a problem. We're trying to identify solutions and the two key pieces to any successful solution are practicality and implementation. And I think that's what you're talking about, Doug. It's how practical are some of these decisions that are being made. They're solutions or hoped for solutions to a climate problem that is very real. But how practical are those solutions? And are we actually going to be able to implement, successfully implement them? I love that analogy, that comment, because you and I, I think, are both of the opinion. We do talk with clients all the time about this. Yes, there are probably some strategies for certain parts of the business that you or I might favor more than other strategies. I do think there are some strengths and weaknesses to all sorts of strategies, but strategy always going to take a backseat to execution and implementation. So you're right. That is what we try to focus on when we're helping clients. And we just kind of wish sometimes the policymakers would do the same. When we talk about implementation, one thing I know, not only is it catching industry headlines, Knight Swift purchasing U.S. Express, Schneider National buying M&M Transport, and many others that are going out there. M&A remains strong, busy. We have a number of clients that we know are actively pursuing transactions, actively shopping transactions. There's a lot of interest in M&A. It's exciting work for us, I know, and we love helping them through that. And we spend a lot of time talking with those clients about that implementation. It just so happens we do more work on the buy side. We've done work on the sell side too, but we do more on the buy side. It's okay. You're looking to buy. What are you looking to buy? What is it out of here you really want? want and what's your plan with it once you have it? Is it to be an investor and use some capital in it? Is it you're trying to get some freight out of it, but you really don't care about the brand and the part? Just give me the freight so I can put it on my trucks. It's I want the personnel. I need to add some personnel. There's not necessarily a wrong answer to the question, but you do need to be able to answer the question. Why do you want this? What are you trying to get out of it? And then you need to focus your implementation on that answer. Yeah, for sure. And I think the same is true when someone's planning an exit strategy. They need to look in the mirror and honestly ask themselves, okay, if I'm trying to sell and I do have a buyer, what are they actually going to get if they buy my company? And I think sometimes that's a hard conversation for folks to have with themselves because everyone has a lot of pride in their business. But depending upon the way the business was structured, depending upon the success of the business before the sale, you really have to ask yourself, okay, this person's going to come in and buy my company. What are they actually going to get? And how should I be practically marketing that so that I can find a buyer and not just turn a bunch of people away because I'm promising something that can't exist? I love that. And if the answer to that question is not a number or a narrative that makes you happy, then the question is going to be, well, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? If you asked yourself, what would I actually be selling? What would a buyer be getting from me? And it's not getting you the number or the situation that you want, then you need to ask yourself, okay, well, what needs to change? And how do we need to change it? Is it related to our equipment? Is it related to our freight base? Is it related to our capacity, our terminals and our geographic footprint? Whatever the case would be is, okay, let's have a plan for how we're going to adjust so that you can have that exit that you're looking for. 
it's really never too early to be thinking about those things. It doesn't mean you have to dwell on it and spend all your time focusing on it, but to be thinking about it from time to time so that you can plan and execute accordingly. Exactly. What value would my business have to anyone besides me? And if the answer is nothing, then you really need to think through that a little bit. Because as you said, Doug, it's never too early. You should always be conscious of the fact that here's what my company has to offer in the case of a purchase. So I do want to hit on two other headlines real quick before we wrap up here today. And this is where I will put my lawyer hat on for a minute. One is a little bit kind of beat to death here, but Julie Sue, the acting secretary of labor for the U.S. Department of Labor, she has not been confirmed. It appears that the Biden administration is not going to pursue her confirmation. They are going to allow her to continue to act as the acting director. Now, I am not an expert in the constitutional issues and the administrative issues related to whether or not someone is acting versus appointed and confirmed and so on. I don't know the intricacies of that, but I do know there is a difference. And there actually are limitations to what someone who is acting as the secretary or director or whatever the title is can do versus what someone who has been confirmed can do. That will be challenged in court, no doubt about it. There will be various lawsuits around that related to any actions the U.S. Department of Labor takes while she remains acting director and is not appointed to the position. Now, I don't know if that will have much impact on individual audits or cases that they might bring. I don't think it will have a ton of impact there, but it will have a significant impact, I think, on the policy making that they can do at that level. So keep your eyes on that. And maybe didn't get as many headlines as it probably deserved, but a very notable decision for logistics companies, for brokers out there. It was a case against Global Trans, and it relates to whether or not a broker can be held liable under state laws for negligent hiring or negligent entrustment. Not exclusively, but typically that is the argument that plaintiff's lawyers make in order to get brokers or to hold brokers liable for motor vehicle accidents. This is particularly prominent when the broker is the deep pocket involved in situation. The broker is the one that's got the more insurance or is bigger in general than the motor carrier that may have been involved in the accident. There actually were two cases that came out this summer. Great work by a couple of law firms involved in that. Taylor Johnson down in Florida. Florida was one of them, tip my cap to them. But again, this industry is blessed to have some very good lawyers defending it. But these new cases that came out were very clear in that brokers should not be held liable for property and injury claims under state law under negligent hiring, negligent entrustment. They can still be held liable if they are found to be a motor carrier. And usually that relates to they're exercising too much control, they're dispatching drivers, stuff like that. But just the traditional, hey, broker, you did a bad job hiring this carrier, therefore you're liable. That argument that plaintiffs bring typically took a really big hit this summer. It's not out. It's not gone completely. There are still ways that the brokers can be held liable. So I don't want everybody to think the problem is solved, but the arguments took big hits and that's a good thing for the industry. Probably too much to go into really at this podcast level, but they are notable for the industry. And I would recommend people to check those out and see what's going on there. Check in 
in with your advisors about how those things impact you. So with that, Gary, enjoyed the discussion as usual. I know you and I are very busy this summer. That M&A stuff has been busy for us. Some operational improvements for some clients. I know you've been spending some good time with clients who just kind of just don't like the way some things are going operationally, need some improvements, some customers that are looking for more sales and more freight. We've been helping them. And Gary, just be curious to hear from you about how the summer's going. Summer's going well, Doug. It's going way too fast. What's keeping me busy these days? Let's talk about one example. We've got a client who, when we started to work with them, a regional carrier, they were pulling almost exclusively off the brokerage boards for their freight. Spot market pricing. We all know what's happened to the spot market pricing in the last year. One of the things we looked at was we said, okay, how do you define regional? So we came up with the geographic parameters of what they thought regional meant to them. We said, okay, let's look within those boundaries and let's try to find some dedicated lanes or at the very least some repetitive lanes. So we were able to take their power units, go out to various logistics companies and shippers themselves and talk about the fact that, hey, we've got trucks running in these lanes every single day of the week. We'd certainly like to have some dedicated business out of you folks, some repetitive business out of you folks. And what we've seen, we were successful with that. And what we've seen is we've seen that it's been good for the drivers, good repetitive business for the drivers, predictable miles, predictable income for the drivers, and predictable revenue for the company themselves. And the customers have benefited from it because we've got predictable service. So when you put that all together, it's a win for the driver. It's a win for the company. It's a win for the customer. I think that we've been able to duplicate that in a few different examples of that within that same company, and their results are much improved year over year. Something that you and I talk about is, and something I know I'm a believer in is at the Graw Group, we're trying to help companies be better, not just do better. So when you rally off, we're helping the drivers, we're helping the customers, we're helping the trucking company itself, and everybody is doing better in a sustainable way. It's not just, hey, let's go chase some rate, but all three of those things being sustainable and the way we've helped that client build it, that, frankly speaking, makes me feel good because we're helping them be better as an organization for the long term. So I know you've been doing excellent work on that. Thank you very much as usual. And again, thanks for the time, everybody, today. Be safe out there. Enjoy the rest of your summer. <music>